The northern ten, ten tribes of Israel fell into Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. About 135 years later, the, the southern tribes of Judah were carried off by the Babylonians into captivity. Their wickedness and their idolatry had led to God's punishment against them at the hands of their enemies. After they had been in captivity for about 70 years, Cyrus, the king of Persia, had decreed that they would be allowed to go home. And it's sort of interesting that not all of them did. They didn't all choose to go home. And in fact, they came back in remnants, in groups. And in doing so, Zerubbabel led the first group back. And when they got back, they realized the temple had been destroyed and they were going to have to rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel had organized that the temple to be rebuilt. They started by building the altar. And in building the altar, it gave them an opportunity to have a way to make sacrifice as they continue to work on the rest of the temple. It was eventually completed uh, under duress. The Samaritans had harassed them greatly, and in 516 B.C., they finally succeeded in finishing the temple. Some 57 years after the dedication of the temple, a second group of the Jews returned home, and this time they were led by Ezra. Once they got on the scene, they realized the condition of the Jews, both morally and spiritually, uh, was sad. That there was great wickedness among the people, and in fact, they had intermarried with some of the neighboring uh, uh, peoples around them, their neighbors, who were pagans. And as a result, they were involved in some of the pagan practices of those people that they had intermarried with. Through Ezra's teaching, and it was over an extended period of time, that a majority of these people finally realized their sins and once again decided that they would follow God. And about 445 B.C., roughly some 15 years after Ezra returned, Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and God used him to try to direct the people on how they should go about putting a wall back around Jerusalem. It was a big task. It was going to be necessary for them to have any type of social and economic structure restored to the people and so it was the task of Nehemiah to convince the people that they were going to do that. And they were able to do so in what I would describe as a relatively brief period of time. They were successful, but they had their challenges. I want you to read with me these 10 verses from Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, I didn't put all of the 10 verses. I elected to pull out the names that I couldn't pronounce uh, that didn't add anything to the story. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those to whom they have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We just finished the celebration of season. We had, uh, we had good foods, choice food, and sweet drinks. We had celebrations. We had giving, we had sharing. And then the season did what they always do, and it came to a close. And as I think about Nehemiah, they had a very difficult task in front of them. They had had a really rough past. You know, the immediate 70, 85 years had been tough on them. Their forefathers had made some horrible choices that led to them being taken away. Nehemiah says, when you get exhausted, don't quit. Be patient. Persevere. Don't forget who God is and what God has done. And remember where your joy is rooted. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And while the season has ended, I want to suggest to you tonight that joy should not be seasonal. We sing about it. We hear about it. We talk about it. We have cards made up. We have banners put up. We do all kinds of decorating. We use the words joy and peace. But I think we need to think about the fact that what is intended that we celebrate during that period of time from the third week in November until the end of December, that season of holiday of joy is something that should not for you and I as Christians be seasonal. We need to remember all year what Christ did. We need to think about that importance of giving and receiving that we did during the holidays, that that's something we need to engage in all year long. We talked around Thanksgiving about the spirit of gratitude. We need to be thankful all year long. Our joy should be with us all year. First Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Think about that phrase. An inexpressible and glorious joy. I don't know quite the fullness of the meaning of that phrase. Whatever the joy is that is being described there, it must be something so spectacular that you and I can't hardly get our minds around it, much less explain it to everybody else. And yet I worry because way too often the way of Christ that is intended to be joyful gets lost. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by me. He is the way. He is the way of joy. We're told in John 15 that Jesus said that he spoke the things that he did to his disciples so that their joy might be full. 
That tells me that whatever he said to them, we need to try to comprehend it because it is the essence of where our joy should originate and what it's supposed to do for us. John 17, verse 13 is really special for me. He said that he did that, the things that he did, the things that he said, he did so that their joy would be fulfilled in themselves. And yet it's still a commandment. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It's a command. We are to rejoice. And we're supposed to have joy, and we're supposed to rejoice in something that is unspeakable, that is almost beyond comprehension. You'd think it would take over us. It would be so pervasive that people would constantly be stopping us on the street and asking us, what is it that you have found? Yet why is it that so many Christians seem to be discouraged? Why is it that we see sadness? Why is it that we hear anger expressed repeatedly? Why is it that whatever is the antithesis of joy is what we too often see in the lives of people? Why is it that we seem to be in church sometimes bored? Why is it that we have to have song leaders that suggest that we sing out? You know, that should never happen, I don't think. And yet I, I look around and I, and I watch some of the denominations and I see these people who constantly want to talk about Jesus and it's almost like sometimes we're afraid to. And I don't understand that. Because if we think about what joy is, it ought to grab us. It ought to change us. And I suggest to you that maybe we don't fully understand what it is. The Greek word for joy is kara. A Thayer's Dictionary says that that's joy or gladness. Vine also adds the word delight. It appears 60 times in the New Testament. 60 times. I would suggest to you the New Testament is a book of joy. And I want to make an, an, an example here. I want to use a comparison because I want us to look at how closely related chara is or kara to charis which is translated in English as grace. Vine says, that which bestows or occasions pleasure, delight, or causes favorable regard. Joy and grace are obviously related. God's grace is where joy starts. And it very well could be that if we don't have the sense of joy that we think we should or that we would really like to have, that we haven't fully considered what grace really means and the difference that it should have in our life. Think about this. What does it take to really warm your heart? Where are those occasions? When does it happen? You know, what, what's going on at the time when that happens? Is it when you sit here and you hear people singing? Is it when the grandkids come through the door? Or Papa climb into your lap? Is it when you see your, your son or your daughter walk across the stage and receive their diploma? When is that real warmth coming? Why is it that that becomes such a meaningful time for you? And I would suggest to you, that's what joy is. 
Whatever those few moments in life are that we share that really grab hold of us, that's what I think we're supposed to have with Christ every day of our life. And it is true, I believe, that joy is directly proportional to the amount of grace that one perceives that they have. If we believe that we've done this all by ourselves, there may not be much joy. If we understand how greatly we were lost and what God did and what price Jesus paid and how we have given, been given an opportunity for eternal hope in heaven, by the grace of God, we have reasons to be joyful. Billy Sunday said, if you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. Something hasn't grabbed hold. William Grinnell said, the reason why many poor souls have so little heat of the joy in their hearts is they have so little light of the gospel in their mind. This morning, Bo reminded us of how important the Word of God is. He talked a lot about engaging with it this year. And I would suggest to you, the more we understand God's grace, the more we will experience God's joy. I want to offer to you very quickly five joy producers. I debated and debated whether or not to ask this question, and I'm leaving, so I'm going to ask anyway. <laughs> whether you wrote it down or just thought it up in your mind, how many of you made New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. Uh, half, maybe. Uh, 80% of New Year's resolutions will be completely violated by the 1st of March. It's a fact. Okay, so if what we're going to talk about then is things that we ought to do in the new year to produce joy so that it's not seasonal all year, we've got to decide what it is about these five things that we want to make part of our resolution, whether we write it down or just implement it in our life. When Paul wrote to the Philippian brethren and said, he's convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and the joy in the faith, that faith is what gives joy. Joy comes from having faith. Where do we get faith? Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. Therefore, if we're not engaged with the Word of God, we're not building our faith. If we're not building our faith, we're not adding to the joy that we need to have is a direct correlation. And if you don't sense the joy of being a Christian that you would really like to have, the first place that you need to start is to get back into the Word of God. Read those stories that were read to you as a child. Read those stories that are almost unbelievable to comprehend. Read about the things that Jesus... Read the words of Jesus. Read the book of John. And I would suggest to you that as we add to our faith, it helps us to combat things that steal our joy, like fear and worry. Paul wrote in Romans, May the God of hope fill you with great joy and peace as you trust in Him. As we trust in Him, as we come to know Him, the God of joy and grace and peace will become ours. Therefore, God's Word is vital to produce joy. Studying God's Word more diligently ought to be something that each of us commit to in 2016. Congregation that Lisa and I uh, worshipped with before we came to Columbia. For several years in a row, we decided that we would lead an effort to try to see how many people that we could get to do read through the Bible in a year. And we didn't care if they read every day or if they read the whole thing in a month. 
read through the Bible. And every month on the first Sunday, I would get up and ask, how many of you are still on track? Stand up. And they would all stand up. And the next month, I'd get up and they'd all stand up. And some of them would not be there that had been the month. And some others would have joined them because they've caught up. And by the middle of the year, I'd say, okay, now everybody stand up. Where where'd the slackers go? Uh, you know, the ones that got behind. And it was amazing to me, after we did that for two consecutive years, how many people had indicated first that they had never read through the Bible and that secondly they were so excited the second year that now they were going to read it differently than they did the first time. We need to engage with the Word of God. Secondly, obedience produces joy. You read those stories in the book of Acts. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, when he came up out of the water, it says that he went on his way, what? Rejoicing. How exciting is that? The Thessalonians became followers of us, and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, the gift that now resides in us, that allows us to have a greater understanding of what it is that God has for our life, what He wants us to do, the challenges that we can't answer, the questions that we have that we want answers to, that God says you don't need answers to, turn it over to me. And the opportunity with obedience to notice what disobedience does. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 are two of the most frightening verses in the New Testament in my mind. For we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth. There's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. There remains no more sacrifice. We need to make sure that we allow our obedience to keep us from reaching a point where disobedience leads us into a state of fear. We can increase our joy by being obedient. Third, forgiveness is a joy producer. Paul said, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of Jesus? You remember when Paul said, These things that I know to do, I don't do those. These things that I know I shouldn't do, I do those. That war is constantly going on in us. And when we fail to allow God's word to direct us and the forgiveness that we need and intend to not be present, we lose. We lose the struggle. We lose the war. And yet we know that as Paul says, I need the joy, I need the delight that comes from a warring side of me to know that ultimately I'm going to stand on the side of grace. Joy comes from forgiveness. I think it was, uh, it was one of our Bible classes recently where the discussion about the psalmist David came up. And as I thought about a couple of passages in the book of Psalms and, and David's reaction uh, to, to what he had done and the need for, for forgiveness is, is so profound in my mind that I, I'm really grateful that he is the one that is referred to as a man after God's own heart. You know, if, if David, with what he did, can be the one described as a man after God's own heart, there's hope for us. You know, when he said in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at this. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Question. In those moments of despair, do you get silent? You just don't want to see anybody? You don't want to talk to anybody? You just want to be left alone? Uh, old folks like me, you ever have your bones ache? You ever just want that to go away and it leads to groaning? I live with Ben and Mary Francis. We all groan together. He says that it's like being drained in the summertime by the drought. Have you ever been so hot that you just felt like you had no life left in you? He says that's what iniquity does to you. You know, in summary, it just makes you miserable. And you want that relief. You want that refreshing. Verse 10, 11 says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice your righteousness and shout for all the upright in heart. Shout for joy. Psalm 51 is probably the passage that more people think about than any other relative to the need for joy. When you can hear the lament of David, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. What? And then I will teach transgressors their ways. It is my conviction that if your joy is not where it needs to be, you're probably not going to be sharing with other people what it is they need to hear about our Lord. Because it's the joy that motivates you to do that. Four, fellowship produces joy. The word koinonia in the Greek is the one that is translated into English as fellowship, but the definition of koinonia is really interesting to me. Fellowship exists because we have a new covenant with God. If that were not the case, it would not be available. And the definition carries with it two ideas. First is to share together, to take part together in the sense of a partnership or participation, and B, to share with in the sense of giving to others. So in fellowship, it's not just us sitting down in the gym and having a meal together, though that is often described as fellowship. This fellowship says we are truly partners. Husbands and wives are described as partners. Those who go into business together are business partners. You see, they have stake in the game. There's something that makes that relationship special. There's an expectation. 
And notice in the second instance he says that there will be giving or a sense of giving to each other. And so fellowship is something that we need to engage in. The New Testament uses the word koinonia when it refers to things like relationships, blessings, burdens, privileges, responsibilities. And so if we're going to have fellowship with each other, all of those things are going to be involved. I would suggest to you that developing Christian fellowship will add to our joy. And it's said in Philemon, verse 7, we have a great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. You've got to be here. Not forsaking the assembling ourselves together as a matter of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because we need to be here for the refreshing that we receive by the fellowship that we share because we give to each other, we have responsibility to each other, we care about each other, we have obligations and burdens, and we love each other, and we want to be here. And we don't get that anywhere else in life. Praise God for the church. Thank Him for the opportunity to have times of hardship when you don't have to do it alone. Look around. Thank Him for times of praise that you get to be able to tell other people about the great things that have happened in your life and these people actually care. We need to have fellowship with each other because it helps to produce that joy. And number five, Christian service helps to produce joy. When we look at what happened in the conversions in Acts 11 and Acts 15, and we see what that did and and how that motivated them to go on and do the kinds of things that they need to do, we see how the, the joy that had been put in front of them was something that could not be bottled. It was going to create work. It was something they were going to figure out what to do. And have you ever led or been partially responsible for leading, assisting anyone who became a Christian? How exciting is that when you sit there and watch that? How exciting is it when you see somebody grow up in the church that you taught in your Bible class, ladies? Moms and dads, how exciting is it when you see that child of yours who now as a teenager is not just sitting in the pew, they're actually singing because they know that joy says that that's what we do, that they want to be part of that, that they want to work, that they want to be engaged. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. There's not a parent alive in the Lord's church who wouldn't make that their motto. You and I can bring joy this next year to West 7th by just being involved, looking at what we can continue to do, There's so many opportunities. Everybody has something to give. It may be filling out those cards. Some weeks ago, you remember the discussion about our fellowship, our joy, our our outreach begins in the parking lot? Remember that discussion? When they're coming in, first impressions. You have a great opportunity to make a first impression on someone. Let them know why it's exciting to be at West 7th. That this is the home because this is the family. And these people are different than what you find anywhere else. They really do care about each other. And they're so excited to be here because they know what God has done for them. You and I need to think about how we can increase in faith, how we can be more obedient, the richness of the forgiveness that we have received because of the blood of Christ, 
how truly fellowship with the brethren and with our Lord can change us and that there can be greater service in His kingdom that can bring us joy. Work yourself into it. My wife had a, 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 a saying that she used to uh, uh, whip our kids over the head with all the time. Fake it till you make it. Just keep doing it. I know you don't like it. Get it done. Keep working on it. You and I have the opportunity to not be artificial. We have the opportunity to be joyous. And I would suggest to you that the joy of the Lord is your strength. When they were facing that wall that had to be built, and they got tired, and they got discouraged, they were reminded. They stood there from early morning until midday and listened to the law read, and tears began to flow down their faces because they knew what the word meant and the difference it would make in their life. And he said, don't weep, don't mourn. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We have a choice. Deciding whether or not we're going to be joyous is a choice. And we can go on and say, thank you, great lesson, go on to the house, forget it all, and not change anything in our life. Or we can decide whether or not we are going to be fundamentally a different person from now on. Because we're going to take what we have been given. That somebody cared enough to share with us the Word of God, and it gave us hope for eternity. That we're going to think about that and let that make a difference in our life by sharing that message with somebody else. If you're here tonight and we can help you with some public confession, the elders will be here at the front. If you're here and you need to privately make a change, do that. Pray to God that today is going to be the day that we start anew. I watched a video today of a friend of mine from a few years ago at Freed Hardman. He said in uh, April of this year, he weighed 300 and something pounds. He's lost 110 pounds this year. And he did so because he was going to die. His diabetes and his high blood pressure and the whole list went on and on and on. And he was clearly motivated you know what? You and I are going to die. How motivated are we to make a change? Do we really want to make a difference in Columbia? We have the opportunity. Thank goodness we have good elders. They lead us in the right way. We have good ministers. They proclaim to us truth. And now it gets down to us. What do we want to do? I don't know about you, but today I choose joy. If you have a need to respond publicly, please come. While together we stand and while we sing.